This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante, sitting in for Nalini Nekarni. In September of 2015, the 193 member nations of the United Nations General Assembly adopted a set of goals, 17 of them to be precise. These goals were intended as a blueprint for a better and more sustainable world for everyone. The goals were intended to be achieved by the year 2030, which sure did seem like a short timeline even back then, but now we're about halfway between the time that the resolution was passed and the time that it's supposed to be realized, and the audacity of this list of goals is becoming more and more clear. Among the objectives that the United Nations wanted to reach by 2030 was an end to poverty, zero hunger, quality education for everyone, affordable and clean energy, and gender equality across the world. And hey, listen, optimism is a lovely thing, but let's be real here. None of that is going to actually happen by 2030. There is one goal, though, that we might still have an outside shot at. Clean water for everyone. In the year 2000, about one in six people across the globe didn't have access to clean water. Our population has increased by nearly 2 billion people since then, but the rate at which people go without clean water has fallen. By some estimates, it's now less than 1 in 10. But getting to the finish line on this goal won't be easy, and that's at least partially because the infrastructure required to monitor water quality is expensive to build and to maintain. But there may be a simpler way, a little trick of bioengineering, that could assure safer water for everyone. Joining me today from Northwestern University, where she is a PhD candidate studying RNA engineering and biosensing, is Kirsten Jung. She is the first author of a recent study that may provide a pathway for building cheap, easily deployable biosensors that can provide rapid detection of water contamination. Kirsten Jung, welcome. Hi, um, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Kirsten, we're going to get to the engineering part of this in a moment, but I wanted to start today by talking about the mission part of this. A lot of times in research, it can be hard to connect the little steps that we make, the little discoveries that we make to a larger goal. But you're part of a team whose research agenda is very much connected to the goal of clean water for everyone. That goal, I understand, comes from an interesting place in your lab. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so... um... We're really very lucky to have interdisciplinary research, um, not just in our lab, but at Northwestern Community. Actually, we have another professor at Northwestern that we work very closely with, whose main research is um, focused on water insecurity and figuring out you know, different uh, places in the world, how people access clean water and what kind of measures they take to get to that clean water. And um, learning from her, we decided that we can maybe do something with our technology that can help solve some of that uh, access to clean water problem. And when you have a big goal like that, a really big, important goal, we're talking about, I mean, not to put too fine a point on this, but this is a goal that literally will help save lives. Is that motivating or is it intimidating? How, how How does it strike you? Yeah, I think it's both very motivating and intimidating at the same time. 
My background is engineering, so I've always been really interested in application-driven technologies. Um, and so when I heard about the project, I was mostly excited to apply something that I know I can do to something that's actually useful that I can take outside of the laboratory and use it um, outside of you know, the controlled environment. So I was more excited than intimidated, but um, yeah, it, it is also, it has a lot of societal implications. Um, so, you know, giving people um, the power to be able to monitor their water is, is great, but at the same time, there's, you know, you know, knowing that your water is contaminated is good, but also terrifying at the same time. And how do we deal with that? Um, that that's a part that we are still figuring it out. I imagine that, well, I mean, in any laboratory situation, in any research situation, there are always going to be setbacks. Setbacks are part of the problem. When you do have something that you're aiming toward, like, hey, if we do this right, we may be able to help provide clean water for many more people. Those setbacks must, they must hit you pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, It's something that we're still... Um, learning through different surveys. Um, I'm not very involved with that study, but there's another uh, researcher in our lab that is really working on figuring out what people actually want and what implications they have when you give the people those power um, to be able to, you know, monitor their own water. To understand the latest step that you and your team have taken toward this big, big goal. We should step back and talk about biosensors and cell-free biosensors. And so let's take that one step at a time. Let's start with this idea of biosensors in general. Uh, Many people might be most familiar with the idea of biosensors in the context of health monitoring devices, like continuous glucose monitors. But there's a huge role for biosensing in environmental monitoring, right? Yeah, I think it's a little bit lacking, maybe because there hasn't been a lot of interest in that. But um, I think there's a huge um, feel there to be able to deploy some of these biosensors for environmental monitoring, for sure. Um, and I think it's been a little bit shadowed also by by the pandemic, where people are now interested in trying to detect you know, coronavirus. Um, but it's, it's actually very similar the way our system works. And the cell-free part of this equation can be a little bit confusing. What differentiates a cell-free biosensor? Yeah, so we are actually very much inspired by nature. So that's what biomolecular engineers do. They take some of the natural systems, we try to understand them, and try to harness them for something useful. There are a lot of different bugs or, or bacteria that actually have evolved many different mechanisms to sense and respond to their environments. So we want to utilize those systems. But if you want to deploy these systems outside of the laboratory, we would like to not have live cells, um, you know, taking them out of the laboratory and deploy them on the field because, you know, these are genetically modified and they're engineered. And so we, we definitely do not want that. So what we do is we take out all the biological machinery necessary for, you know, having the sensing reactions, they, we take them out of the cell and put them in a test tube. So there's no, nothing live involved. So it's very much safe to deploy them um, outside of the laboratory. 
Hey there, this is Matthew LaPlante. I'm the founding producer of Undisciplined and still occasionally get to guest host the program. But a big part of my job these days is just making sure we have the funding we need to support our new host and our amazing producer. We get a big part of that funding from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, and I think that's pretty cool. Mostly on this program, we talk about physical and life sciences, but our support comes from a college that focuses on the social and cultural aspects of human society. And that's because the leaders of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences recognize the interconnectedness of these different areas of study and the importance of making science accessible. If that's something you believe in, too, I'd like to encourage you to join me in supporting this program on Utah Public Radio. Giving is easy. Just go to upr.org and click on the Donate button. And so... Now let's take this just a little bit further to the subject of your latest research, and that involves using toehold-mediated strand displacement, which is a tool that, maybe it's, it's most simple, it allows for the exchange of one strand of DNA or RNA with another. And maybe you can help me out here uh, with, a, with an analogy. What a good way to think about this is that you're creating a molecular switch Yeah, I think that's actually a really good way of putting it. We can very easily design and engineer DNA and RNA strands. We really understand how they interact with each other. So we can design them so that one strand interacts with the other and we utilize it to basically generate a signal. Um, So when there is a contaminant present, we have this toehole-mediated strand displacement reaction that gets activated. And when this system gets activated, strands do, um, they exchange with each other, they bind and unbind, and that whole reaction creates a fluorescent signal. And what that signal allows for is the starting point for molecular computation. That's right. right. Which is... (laughs) And and that's just, I mean, molecular computation is just, I guess what it sounds like is traditional computing uses um, silicon-based technologies. Molecular computation uses biochemistry, in this case, nucleic acid strands and this, this fluorescent signal. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's actually a really good analogy. And then you and your team use this molecular computing tool to create a bunch of different circuits. You created an OR gate, which takes either one of two input signals and produces an output. You made an AND gate, which only produces an output when two simultaneous inputs uh, are are included. Uh, you made actually a bunch of a bunch of circuits using this tool, right? That's right. Yeah. So I think with this project, what we were interested in is. You know, there are many different contaminants present in the water samples, and we wanted to see if we can build a a system that can detect multiple um, contaminants at the same time and try to create a system where, for instance, let's say you have a contaminant A and contaminant B, and somehow they interact with each other to, you know, create something even more toxic, then we would be able to use something like an N gate to tell you that 
there are both contaminants present, um, or, or you can use an OR gate to be able to tell that there are multiple contaminants present at the same time. Um, so yeah. And you also developed a pretty complex circuit that acts like a analog to digital converter to create a series of binary outputs that will encode the concentration range of the molecule being detected. And and I take it this allows you to use a cell-free biosensor not just to say, yes, a contaminant is present or multiple contaminants are present, but also in the amount that it's present. Right. Oftentimes when we were talking to people who are interested in using this technology, they are mostly interested in just knowing yes or no um, above a certain level. But uh, we thought that some contaminants, it's really important to be able to tell what concentration range you have because in certain range, it's actually okay. Like it's not you know, toxic to you, but above a certain range it is. So um, we basically built a circuit that can tell you um, what the range of concentration of the contaminant that is present. And we did it by basically building a different threshold in reaction. So the idea is that we can engineer so that the system has a higher threshold, which requires higher amount of contaminant to overcome that threshold to generate a signal, for instance. And your team was also able to really speed up the process. In some cases, you were able to get the time to detection of a targeted contaminant to less than 10 minutes, which, can we talk a little bit about the implications of that? Why it's important, the, the, speed, the speed of this process? Right. So we had always this goal in mind that we want to be able to use this technology on site, outside of the laboratory, in the field, actually at your home. And, you know, if you think about it, you don't want to be sitting there waiting for your reaction to go for hours. And so having it go fast was really important. Speed was one of the biggest criteria that we wanted to improve upon. We wanted to be, you know, at least, um, you know, 15 minutes or less, basically. Um, a lot of these test kits, you know, even pregnancy, te pregnancy tests or, the, the antigen-based uh, coronavirus test, they all have this 15-minute time, which I think is a pretty good cutoff. And so, yeah, the speed aspect um, really takes us to be able to use this technology, you know, at home or in the field and not have, you know, have to wait for hours. Because when you need water, 10 minutes, not so bad, but, you know, two hours, probably not great. Right, right. <laughs> there. There are a lot of potential applications for this biotechnology that aren't just water, the con detecting the presence and levels of the contamination in potential drinking water. Um, what are some of those other potential applications? Yeah, so I think environmental monitoring is a really good application for our system. We started with water quality because that was something that we are interested in and had immediate application for, but you know, pesticides or any other really toxic um, contaminants that are not necessary for humans, for, but for farmers, for instance, to be able to tell uh, whether there are pesticides present. Um, I think there is a really huge um, uh, application there for our technology. I think uh, human 
biomarker monitoring is also something that we are interested in pursuing, although I think there are many applications already that exist out there. So, um, so yeah. You, you tested this technology on water spiked with zinc sulfate. That was sort of your, your test contaminate. And it did the job, right? I mean, like it, it was pretty effective? Yeah, we actually were able to test them outside of the laboratory in the real world setting. We've, we've done spiking tests to just make sure that we can use, uh, you know, sample matrix that is not, you know, clean water that you use in laboratory. But we actually took some of these uh, technologies and sensors out to Paradise, California and used them on site. Um, and we were able to actually identify some of the water samples that had high levels of copper, which is toxic. Um, so that was really exciting to see. And Paradise, California is the site of a recent very, very big fire. Was that why you chose that area? Yeah. So we came across a lot of articles about how, um, you know, these wildfires that's been destroying many different towns in California could also result in contaminated municipal water supplies as these um, metal infrastructures melt and sip into their groundwater sources. There's been a lot of concern about how that could end up in your tap water, for instance. So we thought that that was a really good opportunity for us to not only test our technology, but to see if we can use this to actually survey different water sites. And you also went out into the field and took some water from Lake Michigan, right? Yeah, so that's just for the, you know, it's it's close to where we do our research. So we just wanted to see if lake water, you know, that is you know, has a lot of salt or other, other type of molecular compositions could also work in our system. So we, we tested in Michigan water also as well, yeah. How many different potential environmental contaminants is were you able to identify with using this technology? So we currently have about 16 different sensors, but uh, we were mostly interested in metal detection because that's one of the most concerning contaminants in terms of drinking water quality. So for the field testing, we were mainly focused on things like zinc, copper, lead, cadmium, but we do have sensors for things like antibiotics that are used in human health or aquatic firms. We also have sensors for small molecules that are often present in different house cleaning products. So for instance, we have a sensor that can sense this molecule that is present in, for instance, a Clorox. Um, yeah. So, so you're up to 16 sensors and quite a few different contaminants. Um, you know, in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency has standards, I think, for more than 80 different contaminants that may occur just in drinking water and pose a risk to human health. Do you think it's possible to create cell-free biosensors with these DNA strand displacement circuits for, you know, 80 different contaminants, more than 80 different contaminants? Can we, can we catch them all? So, yeah, that is a big, big question in our field. Uh, right now, we are sort of rely, we, we are relying on naturally occurring biosensors that we are just 
harnessing from different bacteria. But um, there, there, there's definitely an opportunity for us to engineer these sensors to kind of be able to detect any other molecules. That's a big uh, question. It, it is in theory doable, but very difficult to do. Um, but that is, that is the dream, be able to build sensors that can detect whatever you want. Um, so I, I hope we could do that in the future, but it is a, it is a long-term goal for sure. What, what's the immediate next step toward that goal? So I think identifying some of the most pressing uh, contaminants to go after is probably the first step. You've mentioned 80 different contaminants that are present uh, that are on the EPA watch list. So, you know, going after those and see if there are sensors that can already detect uh, molecules that look very similar to those contaminants. Then we can sort of learn from how those natural sensors actually detect these molecules and trying to change its shape, for instance, to uh, to recognize this other molecule that looks similar to the one that it already detects. You recently defended your PhD dissertation. Uh, congratulations, by the way. Um, how about for you? What's what's the next step? For you, are you going to stay engaged in this line of research? Yeah, actually, I am joining a company um, in San Francisco that does uh, work on developing point-of-care sensors and diagnostics. Um, it's, a, it's a startup company that's been around for a couple of years. Um, so, yeah, I think I will, I will stay in this field for the next couple of years at least. And it'll be really exciting to work on a technology that I am familiar with and actually see it being commercialized. So that's the hope. What's that like right now? You've spent a long time, a lot of years in school, um, and now you're making this transition from academia to the startup world. Is it, is it scary? I think it's actually really exciting. Um, I think uh, biotechnology has been all clearly been um, really doing well for the last couple of years. There are many different companies that are that are you know um, being established, and being part of that, I think it's really exciting for me. Um, so, yeah, I guess I guess I'm more excited than anything. <laughs> That's Kristen Jung. Her team's latest paper on programming cell-free biosensors with DNA strand displacement circuits was published in February in the journal Nature Chemical Biology. Kirsten, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and by every UPR donor. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>